0: The title of today's talk is "Dead Man Walking." Now, I I realize that some of you uh, may have come here hoping to actually see a dead man walking. Well, as far as I know, it hasn't been planned for this service, Um, but um, you know, know, maybe maybe another service. Um, In my experience, I've never seen a dead man walking. However, if you happen to have a friend who has just had a baby, you may have a very good idea of what a dead man looking looks like. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But on a more serious note, the truth is that none of us has ever claimed to be raised from the dead or knows of anyone who claims to be or have even heard of anyone who claims that. Yet, the Bible has this fascinating, yet tremendously rare, Claim that Jesus rose from the dead on the first Easter morning. Can we possibly take this seriously, in the especially in the 21st century? And, and if so, what is the meaning of that? So what I'm going to do in the next five minutes, very quickly, is just um, look at the evidence for the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. And I'm going to do this because. Uh, Most people are not aware, or many people are not aware, that the majority of New Testament critics and scholars today take the resurrection as a historical fact. Um, Now, when I talk about these scholars, um, I'm not talking about Christians, though there are Christian scholars, of course. I'm talking about people who are not Christians, who are not believers, New Testament critics and historians, who, when they studied the life of Christ, they don't take the New Testament as a wholly inspired book. They, they are expecting to find errors, mistakes, inconsistencies um, when they come to the New Testament. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, um, some of these academics uh, in the last century have um, tried to disprove the resurrection and actually come on the very opposite side uh, believing what they were said to, to disprove. Sir Lionel... Uh, Luca, um, according to the Guinness Book of the World Records, was the most successful lawyer you, uh, that has ever lived. This guy, as a defense attorney, won more than 400 murder trials in a row. I mean, he was unbelievable, brilliant legal scholar. Yet he was a skeptic about the resurrection. Until one day, a friend of his, uh, challenge him to put this monumental legal skill and apply it to the historicity and the historical record of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, He spent several years doing that and this is his conclusion. Quote, I say, unequivocally, that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This is from the greatest lawyer who has ever lived. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event in the ancient world. Did you know that everyone in the ancient world agreed that the tomb was empty? Roman historians, Babylonian historians, Jewish historians, they all could see it was empty. The question was, How on earth did it get empty? The religious scholars and and leaders of Jerusalem who were right there seeing things happening came with this brilliant idea, very convenient for them that the disciples had stolen the body yet the disciples lacked motive and opportunity besides, why would they steal the body if they were going to be tortured by death by that lie? It makes no sense I'm going to give you very fast, I'm not going to, this is, this is not a lecture, I'm not going to spend all the time on this, just uh, three or four minutes on three facts that are taken today as historically accurate by New Testament critics, again, not Christians. Number one, on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his woman followers. Now, why is this important? Well, you have to understand that in first century Palestine, the testimony of a woman was not reliable at all. Women woman could not even testify a witness in a law court. So, if the disciples were making up a story, they would have never chosen women as their first witnesses. It was a shame, and it was useless. If the disciples were making up a story, they would have said, Peter found the empty tomb, or James found the empty tomb. Yet that's not what we hear. The best possible explanation for this is that that is what actually happened and they were faithfully recording it. Fact number two. On multiple occasions, various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. The skeptical critic, Gerd Ludemann, eminent scholar, has said, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Again, this is not a believer talking. This is a a New Testament critic. And third fact, most important of, of all, many people, including the original disciples, suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary, they are experiencing a strong transformation in their lives. This is the most powerful evidence for the resurrection. You have so many lives of people that were transformed after the death of Jesus. Among 500 eyewitnesses there were skeptics, non-followers of Christ, and even enemies. Yet all of them after Jesus dies, come to believe in Christ. You have Paul. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He killed Christians. He met the risen Christ, and he becomes one of the pillars of the Church, to the point that he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. You have James, Jesus' own stepbrother. He did not believe in Christ when he was alive. He saw him grow. He saw him do the miracle. He saw his life. He was blameless. He did not believe in him. Yet, after he died he becomes one of the pillars of the church. How do you explain that? These were clearly new men. And the numbers are not just a small group of disciples. The numbers of Christians that grew in the Roman Empire were so high and they spread so quickly that at some point a Roman historian said, if you were to empty the Roman Empire from Christians, it would be left empty. It was exaggerating, of course, but you get the point. The eminent British scholar, New Testament Wright, says, and I'm finishing with this without the resurrection, there is a gaping hole in the middle of the first century history that nothing else can plug. That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Friends, if you had any doubt about the historicity of Christianity or Jesus, or particularly his claim that he resurrected from from the dead, you have every right to be confident that this is a historical event. No Christians are telling you so. Why shouldn't you take it like that? Now, I understand it it is a hard one to swallow. We don't see this in the 21st century. But, friends, if God exists... And he was reconciling the world with himself in the person of Christ. Ought we not to spend something of divine nature? I would think so. Right. The lecture ends there. Now, what is what is the importance of the resurrection? Does it does it make any difference for a Christian to have it? Did did Jesus really need to die? And, and raised on the cross because, you know, I've just died? Listen to the Apostle Paul. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I'm going to do a little bit of a background here on why Jesus came to the earth. We've sung about it, uh, but I just want to feed up just a little bit of background. Listen to Jesus uh, before, when he predicted his, his uh, death and resurrection, why he came. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life willingly. He didn't learn from a fortune teller that he was going to die at some point and... Uh, for many people. He knew that was the reason he came for. Later on he says, I laid down my life for the sheep. No one takes it away from me. I lay it down for myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. And in another place Jesus says, I came that they may have life, and life abundantly. In other words, Jesus loved us so much that he deliberately came to give his life for us as a ransom. Friends, if we want to understand the resurrection, we first need to understand why Jesus came, and particularly what was going on at the cross. Because he rose from the cross. Once we understand what the cross is about, it will become self-evident why the resurrection is necessary. And my, my goal um, in, in the next minutes will be this, to explain what the cross is and so that you can, you can realize how self-evident it is that we need the resurrection. It, it will kind of wrap up at the end, okay? Now, if you ask the average person in the street why did you think God would allow you to go to heaven? The average answer, and I found it in, in several countries uh, where I've been, it's, always a, it's almost always the same. Because I'm a good person, right? Um, we all find it relatively easy um, that, that, yes, we are more or less good people. You know? you, you're good to granny, you help, peop- you help people cross the street once in a while, and you don't feel much. Um, Okay, so it's 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 like a like a scale. Um, on one side we have you know bad things. Yes, we we're not perfect. Bad things, and on this side the good things. And you, you, you're hoping that at the end of your life, you know, you you actually have a even it's just a, a little, but a bit more good deeds than bad deeds, right? And then even though you barely make it, you do make it, right? Um, it's amazing how easy. Uh, we find it to deceive ourselves and, and, and think that we are righteous. Um, we're so prone to think of ourselves in these terms. Um, but, w- but we cannot deceive God. Imagine with me, <coughs> sorry, you were to die today. Uh, it's not that we want to, that to happen, but just imagine you die today. And suddenly you find yourself in this massive, huge auditorium, like a stadium, 40 to 50,000 seats, and in front of you, you have the biggest cinema screen you've ever seen in your whole life. Okay? Is it in there? Suddenly, an angel appears. An angel appears. He sweeps right to where you are in blazing light. He he draws his sword just to get your attention and says, "Welcome to the theater of God's judgment. Relax. You're going to enjoy this." we're now going to show a movie of your film. In this film, you're going to see everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, and everything you've ever done. A hit play. You watch it in glorious, three-dimensional, surround, sound, technicolor. Okay? The movie ends. The angel comes back and says, I hope you enjoyed the the movie. Everyone who was in this movie wants to come now and watch it with you. In fact, they're standing outside waiting for a second showing. Tell me, what rating will you give this film? PG? 15? The truth is that none of us is prepared or will have any confidence whatsoever to reveal everything about ourselves. We will find it very difficult to refer to ourselves in terms that we're relatively good. So, sin is a real problem in our life. Now, the question is, what does a loving God do with our sin? That's, that's an important question. Yes, we're not perfect, but what does God do about it? Um, to which some people, um, many people think this is how it works. Again, you die. Um, and uh, you, you're before God, and God actually knew that the, the night before that you were going to die, so he pulled out the DVD of your life and he watched it. So he comes to you now and says, I've watched your life. I know everything you've done. You know, you didn't do so, so bad. I mean, it just happened that I watched Hitler's life a couple of nights ago, and there's no comparison, okay? Yet, you know, that thing you did over there, that wasn't right at all. And, and that other thing over there, that wasn't your birthday, was it? No. Yeah. That whole area over there. You felt a little bit of that, didn't you? Yeah. Ah, my, my, my. What are we going to do? So, in the overall, I'd let you in, okay? After all, hey, I'm a loving God, eh? A loving God does not mean that, necessarily. A loving God um, has a very different perspective on sin. Actually, this depiction of sin could not be farther from the biblical perspective. This is the problem. God has created us, and he has created us as relational beings. We need relationships. We have family, we have friends, sometimes even neighbors, and pets. We live in a world of relationships, yet... Not only God has given us relationships, He has given us a framework in which this works. It's a moral framework. In this framework, there is only one element that is utterly important and necessary. That your relationship with God is the number one relationship. When you put this relationship in, in number one, everything, everything else works as it should. All relationships work perfect. It's that perfect world that we all starve and long for that we never get hold of. Okay? And there's just one element that you, you're at peace with God, you honor Him, you respect Him, and, you know, you obey Him because uh, at the end of the day He is the Creator and you are not. Yet, the moment you step out of that framework, um, things start to fall, fall apart completely into pieces. Um, your relationships break. You bring misery into your life and on and on and on until you get to the world that we watch every day on the news on BBC. Okay? The funny thing is that we're actually convinced that without that relationship of God we'll find true freedom. But what we actually do is we kill ourselves. Imagine with me a fish. Okay? To be original, we'll call him Nemo. Nemo lives in the ocean. He gets his food from the ocean, he gets his ocean from uh, uh, food from the ocean and everything, he is in there. Nemo grows up and comes to the conclusion that he's now a big fish, he's not a little boy anymore, and he can make decisions for himself. Actually, he is free. But he looks around and says, this ocean is too restrictive. I can not... I can't do everything I really want. In order for me to be truly free, actually, I would love to go outside the, the, the world of the ocean into that other world that's up there. I really want to do that. Actually, if I, if I can't do that, I am not free. So, he decides he's going to go into that world and find true freedom. So, he starts swimming as fast as he can. The enthusiasm is growing as he to the surface until finally, splash! He... He jumps as high as he can, shouting Freedom! If it helps you imagine, William Wallace well as a brave heart. Okay? Now, have you ever watched a fish out of the water? What, what happens to it? We, we eat them, they die. Friends, freedom is not being able to do whatever I want whenever I want and however I want to do it. That is anarchy and it's always destructive. Freedom is a moral concept and it's embedded in a moral framework. The moment you get rid of that framework you don't get an increase of freedom but the very loss of it. When we Um, choose to reject God we're basically jumping out of the water we're killing ourselves we're condemning ourselves and this is what the Bible calls sin it is not the accumulation of wrong deeds in your life it is the very emancipation from God and the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we have all said no to God and the consequence of this is that we're all dead spiritually now if we go to heaven based on how good we are think about it where do you draw the line I mean what is, what is who gets there and who doesn't you, you have to think of, of some level some degree of goodness uh, from, from here up People go to heaven from here below. I'm sorry. Um, so let's think about this. We have at the very top people like Gandhi and Teresa of Calcutta. People, you know, utterly outstanding, amazing. You will never be like them. Sorry. Um, yeah, just in case you were hoping. But... Um, Okay, the, at the very top. Second level, you have people that have very high moral standards. These are very good people. Trustworthy. You can trust them with anything, okay? You start going down and you, know, you get to people who people who you can trust with your car. You can give them even your credit cards. You know, they won't do anything with them. They're not perfect, but, you know, you can trust them. Then people, a little bit, you know, you wouldn't trust them so much. They're not bad people. You just wouldn't trust them. And, you know, you keep going down level and level people who steal people who kill people who quit a lot and then at the very very bottom you have the most evil people you could ever think of these people actually love inflicting pain like dentists Okay, friends this is not how it works where did you draw the line? And most importantly, who says where the line is? This is not how it works. Jesus did not come to make bad people good people, so that you, know, you just make them jump from one group to another. Jesus came to make dead people live. When Jesus died on the cross, he was actually paying our he was paying for our sins taking our guilt and sin and paying for it this is called substitution I'll illustrate it with you very easily this is us and this is Jesus and we have God here relationship, God and Jesus relationship, us and Jesus, us and God this is our sin we've chosen to get rid of that framework to not have that relationship with God or having him as the number one We have offended God. What does Jesus do? He takes our price. He takes our sin and pays the price even though he is the offended party. Did you see how amazing this is? This is why we sing sing amazing grace. This is truly amazing love. Who has ever done this for you? The way you tell how much something is worth is by knowing how much something is prepared to pay for it. This is my, my wedding ring. Someone said it's a band of metals that cuts your circulation. Um, this one is made out of gold. Um, at least that's what the guy who sold it to me said. Um, this This has value. Why does, it have value? Why does it have value? It has value because someone is prepared to pay for it. If no one were prepared to pay for it, what would be the value of this? The answer is nothing. It would have no value. It would just be another metal. What was the price that God was prepared to pay for you to be forgiven? And the answer is the highest possible price. Tell me, if God exists, do you think that God means anything to him? The highest possible price that God could have paid was Himself. God gave His own life on the cross because He loved you so much. That, that was His solution. That was how much He loved you and was willing to pay. And friends, this is the meaning of the cross. It is truly the most amazing story you've ever heard. We have offended God. He is the offended party. With our sin, we have rejected Him. Yet, He offers us forgiveness. And he offers us new life by dying on the cross for us. So we have one side of the coin, the cross. That's the meaning of the cross. We know now why Christ came. Now, the other side of the coin is the resurrection. Where does the resurrection fit in all this? Well, Jesus is claiming to offer you eternal life to offer you forgiveness, to be restored to God, to be transformed. Yet, could I know, could I not offer you this very same thing today? I could, could I? I mean, I I could say right now to you, hey, you know, I, I've been looking at you for a while, and you seem to be good people, but you have lots of sin in your life. Um, what I'm going to do is this. I'm I'm a good guy, and I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice for all of you, so that all your sins are forgiven. I will take them on myself. It will be uh, my gift for you, okay? So, you just need to put your trust in me, and and believe in me, and and that's what will happen. You will be in heaven forever. So, I go up a building, look down, seems high enough, jump, and throw myself. Okay? would you put your trust on a smashed potato? The truth is that no one in his right mind would put his trust on a smashed potato. You would not trust me, especially when you look down and look at the state in which I am. Okay? You would not. Anyone could claim what Jesus was claiming. Anyone could come and say, hey, I'm going to die for you, I'm going to pay for you, you will be forgiven. If Christ was not, were not alive today, and we knew that His body was still in Palestine, there will be no hope for us. His claims will be as meaningless as the ones I was giving you a minute ago. But it is because Christ is alive, it is that we can have hope. It is that we can trust Him. That is why. That is why Paul in First Corinthians that we read at the beginning said, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. If Christ has not raised, you are still in your sins. That payment was not fulfilled. It did not happen. It was just an, an illusion. You can trust Christ today because he is alive and it validates the gospel and friends this gospel is the solution for human beings if it is true if, if, if really what Jesus is offering is true, this is the hope that we all need but if he didn't rise from the dead we may as well trust this mashed potato I'm going to um, introduce now um, Ken Benin He's going to tell us about uh, how he put his trust uh, in Christ and experienced this forgiveness and experienced uh, the, the risen Christ uh, in his life. Uh, so please uh, pay attention to what he, his story. Yeah.
1: Good morning. Um, I, my story, thank you for inviting me to, to hear a little bit about my story. Um, I was uh, brought up in a Christian family, so uh, I inherited, as it were, uh, a Christian faith. Um, But at the age of 17, um, my mother took her own life, and because of that, there was a sort of, almost as if the sort of ground was taken out from underneath me, and uh, I sort of, I suppose I, beca- I was introduced, as it were, I, I began a relationship with death in quite a sort of dramatic way, as you can probably imagine. Um, and so, is it where I was sort of thrown into the Good Friday of Easter, the sort of position that Peter might have found himself in when he was uh, denying Christ, everything had gone wrong, basically. Uh, all the promise that uh, Jesus had given to him seemed to be, you know, uh, seemed to have sort of just been thrown away. Uh, all the, the hope of a, a revolution, perhaps, of, of, um, of, of uh, throwing out the Romans of putting everything right, was all gone. Um, and uh, so my story was really about coming from that place of, of the relationship with death. To choosing something about life and um, choosing a relationship with Jesus uh, for my own uh, for my own sake, but not just because i 'd inherited it as a child, part of my family, um, but because I could see that just transforming power happening in myself and in the world around me. Um, Obviously, in a couple of minutes, I'm not going to be able to sort of explain that uh, completely. But I would certainly encourage you to look uh, for that. Um, I appreciate a slightly difficult subject matter. So if anybody are listening to what I've just said, uh, you know, it raises any questions. I'm around at the end and uh, I worship here each week. And if you wanted to come and have a chat about any of those things, I'd be more than happy to talk. But, yeah, I just wanted to... I'm very grateful for this opportunity to share.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Um, Jesus Christ did not come to make dead people live. He came to make dead people... Sorry. Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people... Live. The line is not the line is not like this, friends. This is the way Jesus draws the line. On one side, you have people who acknowledge their sin and acknowledge that they they have not not given God the priority, the number one, and yet they take Jesus' offering, Jesus' forgiveness, and they accept that restoration to God a new life. The life uh, that Ken was just talking about uh, right now. And it's called in the Bible being born again. It is not that we have a greater life. It is that we experience life for the first time. And on the other side, you have people who just keep on living as they are. Rejecting God, acting as if He is dead, and ignoring his love and what he's done for us on the cross it's not like this it is like this Um, so my question for you is do you know him? do you know God? have you experienced this transformation in your life? have you experienced that forgiveness in your life? the bible says that when you take that forgiveness There is a peace that fills you that surpasses every understanding. It's not a normal peace that we know. This is a divine peace that fills you. I don't know if you know the the story of... um, It's a true story, obviously, of three turtles. And they set up for a picnic. And um, so, the first turtle uh, prepares sandwiches, the second one prepares drinks, and the third one just comes to make a threesome. So they set up at great speed to the woods. And um, when they're halfway to their destination, um, it starts raining. So they take shelter under a big rock. And they're down there stuck. The first turtle turtle turns to the second one and says, I brought sandwiches, you brought drinks. He brought nothing. He should be the one to go and get the umbrellas. To which the third turtle says, no way. The moment I leave, you're going to eat the sandwiches and drink the drinks, and I'll have no fun. They say, no, we won't. He says, yes, you will. No, we won't. Yes, we will. No, we won't. Fine. After a long discussion, the first two turtles say and swear on their shells, they are not going to touch the sandwiches, and they are not going to drink the drinks. So the third turtle goes for the umbrellas. Minutes passed. Minutes become hours. Hours passed. Hours become days. Days pass. After three days, the first turtle turns to the second one and says, look, let's just eat the sandwiches and eat the drinks and let's go home. To which there's a uh, a voice in the back that says, if you do, I won't bring the umbrellas. (laughs) Why is the turtle still there? He's there because he's scared to death and lost into indecision that he's going to miss on the fun. And friends, so many times when we hear about Christ and the Gospel, we're compelled to accept it and, and take it, it looks good. But then we're so scared of missing on the fun of life. All those things that we tell so dearly. Yet what we don't realize is that we, we hold to these little things and we say, no, 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 this, this, is, this is all that must be to life. This little pleasure here, I I just hold to that, because even if it's little, that's all there is. Yet, this is a tragedy, because we hold to so little, when actually, God is suffering so much more about life. Maybe you've you've come this morning um, thinking you were a Christian, and maybe you're realizing that, uh, well, maybe you didn't get everything right, and actually, you believe something else, or um, it may be the first time that you even consider becoming a Christian. Um, What what I would like to do now is, um, if you're in a position where you think you're prepared to say yes to God, um, what I'm going to do is is just pray a prayer, and uh, what you can do is just uh, share this prayer, make it yours as I pray. and if you want to say yes to to Jesus, and, um, now if you're not in that position today, uh, don't worry. Please don't pray that prayer. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to have we have a, a book with ta- um, table with books over there. They are free. I'll repeat that. They are free. You can take them. Please do take them because they are there for you. If you have any questions, you're not prepared to say yes to God. You have questions about Christianity, Jesus. Historical doubts or whatever you, you you want to understand more of this, take take a look at the books and take any of those with you. Um, yeah, and please come to us and, and 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 ask us or anyone around. But if today you are in that position where you want to say yes to God, um, the prayer is basically going to say, God, I'm sorry for my sin and I thank you for your forgiveness on the cross and. Uh, I want to follow you. So it basically says something like that. Now this will only take twenty seconds. Um, again, if if you don't want to pray, don't pray. Just stand still where you are. Don't worry. Uh, nothing mystical will happen. Or no one is going to take money from your pocket while you're not looking. And uh, you, you won't be you won't be hypnotized. Okay. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're a God that loves me. And I thank you that even though I have turned my back on you and lived as if you were dead, that you actually paid the price for me and ultimately took a death that should be mine and you gave yourself on the cross that I might be forgiven. Lord Jesus, I pray for that forgiveness this morning. I am sorry for what I've done. I turn to you and I put my trust in you. And I will follow you wherever you have me go. Amen.